We're going to begin this morning with uh, some readings from the Bible on the theme of Jesus' resurrection and ours. And then after that, we'll invite you to sing. John eleven twenty five and 26 says, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Romans 4, 1 and 5 says, And Jesus Christ our Lord was shown to be the Son of God when God powerfully raised him from the dead by means of the Holy Spirit. Through Christ, God has given us the privilege and authority to tell Gentiles everywhere what God has done for them so that they will believe and obey him, bringing glory to his name. Romans 6, 8 through 11. Now if we died with Christ... We believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus.
Now let me give you a little more formal welcome. Uh, if you are here this morning with us as a guest for the first time or a guest for the first time in a long time, we're delighted to have you with us as we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ this morning. I want to, uh, want to uh, let you know of uh, a way that you can let us know how we can help you. Uh, inside of the program that you received when you came in this morning, there is a connection card. And if you're here as our guest this morning and would like to know more about the ministries of CBC or if there's any way that we can help you, you can indicate that on this card and then you can either drop it into the offering plate that will be passed by later or you can drop it off at the information desk, which is just outside to your left here. And uh, we hope that you'll stop by with your connection card or at least stop by and let us know there that you're our guest and we have a special gift for you there as well. Um, Just a couple of announcements that I want to draw your attention to really quickly inside of your program. That is, uh, first of all, that this week, due to the Easter break, you see on the bottom left-hand panel there, our normal midweek programs will not be meeting. And so I just wanted to call your attention to that. And then on the right-hand panel there, you'll see there are several items for which you can register. And you'll find details for those items, senior high camp, family camp registration, and our True Woman uh, conference as well that's coming up. Now let's continue worshiping the resurrected Lord as the ensemble reads from God's word regarding his work on our behalf. Romans 8, 35-39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life.
First John chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the substitution for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the entire world. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. 1 John 4, 9-11 through 11 says, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the substitute for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. bow together before the Lord. (laughs) Father, we stand before you as your people, knitting our hearts with believers of the world over on this special Lord's Day. Each day on the first day, each week we gather on the first day to worship you because you raised Jesus on that first day of the week, 2,000 years ago. 
and each year at this time. We set it aside to focus especially on the greatest of miracles, the resurrection of God the Son, Jesus Christ, from the dead. The resurrection reminds us that you are the giver of life. You have life in yourself, so you were able to create it and to grant it to us. You are able to heal and to reverse the effects of the fall that take life. And you're able to revive life that has been taken. By your power, you have raised many from the dead physically. By your power and mercy and for your glory, you have raised us to life spiritually. When we were dead in our sins because of your richness of mercy, you gave us the life of God the Son through the work of God the Holy Spirit. Because of that, we are alive now. Not only physically, but spiritually. And we will live forever with you, free from the precursors and effects of death, because thanks to you, our God, Jesus has conquered. And so we stand before you fully alive spiritually, and with the absolute assurance of fully restored life physically in the future. And in the meantime, we want to celebrate the life you've given us, and we want to be conduits of your life to others. And so we've gathered to thank you and to praise you as we rehearse your blessings to us and as we hold forth the word of life to all who come that they may too taste the life that only Christ can give. We ask you then to accept our offering of worship. and We pray all of this in the name of our risen Lord, Jesus Christ. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you and please be seated. And I want to add my welcome to that which you have already received. Welcome one and all, a special welcome to those who are guests or for whom it has been a long time. We're delighted that you are all here. And we are, at this point in our service, going to worship the Lord through the act of giving. We do this every week. And at this point every week, I say to those who are guests, as I say to you, do not feel obligated to give as the offering baskets are passed. This is something that those who are members of our church do each Lord's Day as a means to worship Him and to further His work through uh, the church here that we've all mutually committed to. I just want to say a couple of things, and then we will uh, pass the uh, baskets and worship the Lord through giving. One, thank you all for your indulgence with regard to the parking situation that we have here. Uh, If you are a guest, you may not know that this is only the seventh meeting that we have had in this room because it was just recently expanded, and we moved into it on uh, March March the 3rd. So we have not been able to expand the parking to make it fit the size of this room. That's going to happen as soon as the weather breaks. So here in the next several weeks, couple of months, we will have expanded parking if indeed you decide to come, and we'd be delighted if you do that. And I just want to reiterate what you heard earlier, and that is tell us how we can help you. There is that connection card that's inserted in your program. Just fill out as much or as little about yourself as you would like. Turn that in in the baskets as they're passed here or at the information center desk as you leave. That's out in the foyer. And uh, either way, for everyone here, guest or not, at the end of our time when we leave, there's a table set up out in the foyer. It has a gift, a book for everyone to take. We actually have three different books related to uh, Easter, the resurrection, and you're welcome to take uh, either of those you would like as our gift to you. Now may the Lord bless you as you give. First Peter 1.3 Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, and 21. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead.
Revelation 19, 11 through 16. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Verses 1 through 10 says, Now after the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the, t- the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were as white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell the disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and they worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me.
Unfortunately, rabbits. Candy? Rabbits and stuff and kids chasing eggs. It's unfortunate it's so commercialized that when you hear Easter, that's the first thing you think of. Easter's pointless. Usually that's one of the two times a year they go to church. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ for the salvation of all souls. What comes to your mind when you think of the cross? The cross? The cross? I uh, just think of what Jesus did for us. It's a very strong symbol that uh, many people interpret in many different ways. A waste of time and a waste of energy. I think of Jesus Christ and Christians. If there's a heaven, how do you get there? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Heaven? <laughs> uh, which religion, you, which, which one do you want to talk about? Christian heaven? I'd be more likely uh, inclined to believe that... that uh, Everybody goes to heaven. I think just doing whatever you believe is right. For me personally, I feel that you have to ask Christ into your heart, and that's the only way there. I think that people have different opinions on how you get to heaven. I don't really think that there's one right or wrong way to get there or to be denied access. Be a good person. You know, treat people like you should be treated, like you want to be treated. I grew up in a tradition that that didn't necessarily believe that you have to be saved to get to heaven. Follow Jesus' words. All you have to do is believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, and that's it. That's, that's all you have to do is believe. If you have a Bible with you, will you turn it to John chapter 11, John chapter 11, and if you do not have a Bible, we want everybody to have one. That's why these brothers are coming forward. They have Bibles in hand. They're going to make their way to the back, and as they do, get their attention, please, because those Bibles are marked at John 11. We want you to be able to follow along as we look together, and also we want you to keep that Bible as our gift to you because we want everybody to have a copy of God's Word. John chapter 11. We want everyone to have a copy of God's Word because it's only in God's Word that we can accurately answer the questions posed in the video. What is Easter? What's the importance of the cross? How do you get to heaven? Only the author can authoritatively interpret his work. Others can try. But only the author knows his intended purpose, and we can only know for sure if the author tells us. Only an artist, whether a musician, a painter, a sculptor, only an artist can definitively say why he did what he did. Now, the truth is, I can live and even live well if I don't know the true interpretation of a painting. But I cannot live well if I don't know why I was made why it is that I am here, and why it is that all the would-be masterpieces in our world are here. God is the author of life, and God has to give us the interpretation, His intention for why He created life and created us and everyone and everything else. God is, and everyone believes that, even those who claim to be atheists. Now, how do I know? How do I know that it's God that we must consult for the interpretation of life? Because everyone believes that He is, and how do I, I know that? Well, there are two ways. One, God says in the Bible there's no such thing as a true philosophical atheist. The Bible says the fool has said in his heart that there is no God. And I've stated to those of you who have been here in the past that in the Bible, foolishness is not the same as ignorance. Ignorance just means we don't know, but foolishness is failure to appropriate 
failure to apply what we do know. And God has given information about himself to all people so that all people know that God is, even if they foolishly deny that. And since God is, then only he, as the author, the painter, the sculptor of life and of our lives, can tell us why we're here and where it is we're going. If you're going to know the answers to the big questions, you desperately need to hear from God. The good news is this. God has not only made us and made the world around us, God has written to tell us why he did so. And he not only wrote to tell us why, he came to earth as a man to carry out his purpose and give us an up-close and personal look at what God is like. The events of Easter 2,000 years ago teach us some things about God's purpose and what his purpose means to us. That's why I've asked you to turn to John chapter 11. The first verse says this, Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. John, who wrote this, simply adds that parenthesis to identify this Mary and distinguish her from all the other Marys in Scripture. And then verse 3, so the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And what happens in this story in John 11 with Jesus' friend Lazarus tells us some very important things about why we celebrate Easter. In these verses, one of the things we see is the heart of God on display. We see what God is like. So I invite you to look on the back of your program, the very back of your bulletin. We have an outline listed for you there, and there are three things that this passage in John 11 tells us about God and also about ourselves in turn. The first is this, Easter teaches us what God cares about. It teaches us what God cares about. In verse 3 and throughout this chapter, it's Jesus who's the central player, but I say in the outline here that the story tells us what God is like, what God cares about, even though it's talking about Jesus. Now, why do I do that? Well, because 10 chapters earlier, in the very first chapter of the Gospel of John, here's what we're told about Jesus. God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so in the opening chapter, John identifies this one who came as man, as none other than God himself. And so when you see Jesus spoken of, it is speaking of God. And that's why I say we see Jesus as the central player in John chapter 11. We see what it is that God cares about. So what is it that God cares about? I say in your outline first, he cares about us. He cares about us. Verse 3, Lord the sister said, the one you love is sick. And then in verse number five, if you look there, it says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. It appears that God in the flesh, Jesus, had developed a friendship with these siblings during his time on earth. Now, when Jesus received the news that Lazarus was gravely ill, he was a few days journey away from their town. Their town is Bethany. And it was several days before Jesus arrived there, and by that time, Lazarus had died. And it was customary, believe it or not, to hire people back in those days to mourn the funeral of someone who had passed. It was seen as a fitting tribute to the deceased, and we're going to see those hired mourners in just a moment. And verse 32 tells us how it was that Jesus reacted when he did get there. One of the sisters, Mary, goes to meet him and says in verse 30, it says in verse 32, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, these are the professional mourners, it says he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Friends, this tells you something about the heart of God. 
He cares in many respects about what we care about, things like love and friendship and relationships. And he, God himself, has experienced the pain of separation in those relationships. When it says in verse 35, Jesus wept, the way that was originally written means that Jesus burst into tears. One commentator said this, Jesus is not remote from the sufferings of his fellow humans. The fact that he is one with us in humanity means that he is one with us in agony. So Jesus wept, paradoxically, the shortest text in the Bible is also one of the most eloquent. John's point in verse 33 is that the tears were not the professional tears of the hired mourner or of the inwardly detached spectator. Jesus is one with us in our need. He feels our pain. He lives our experience from the inside. His tears at that moment authentically express the emotion of his heart. We learn that people matter to God. And Jesus made this point a number of times throughout his ministry on earth. He said on one occasion, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. He said on another occasion, Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are not you much more valuable than they? There was no, and is no, as far as I know, penalty for killing birds. I guess some birds. But capital punishment was instituted by God in His Word for the taking of the life of a human. The difference is this. We were made to reflect God. We, alone among His creation, were made in His image. And so Jesus says, do not worry. Saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? The pagans run after all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. The Bible just tells us very directly, He, Christ, cares for you. This passage and passages throughout Scripture tell us what God cares about. And one of the things He cares about is us. But he also cares, I say in your outline, about our circumstances. He cares about us, and he also cares what's happening and what's going on with us. The Bible says of Jesus, we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness. That word that's translated sympathize there is a word that is similar to a phenomenon that takes place between musical instruments, I'm told, by musicians. If you have two pianos in the same room and you hit a key on one, there will be a sympathetic vibration on the other. And this is saying that God, Christ, has experienced the kinds of things that we experience and what we experience and go through resonates with the heart of God. When Jesus walked the earth, the Bible says of him, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. So Jesus cares, God cares about us. He cares about what happens to us, our circumstances. And those circumstances are often difficult because we live in a sin-cursed, fallen world. And God is angry with the effect of that sin. That sin being failure to live for the purpose we were made. And He's angry with the effect that that has had on His world. In fact, in this passage, it's clear that Jesus was not only sorrowful about what happened to his friend Lazarus. Now hear this. Jesus was outraged at what had happened. When it says in verse 33, he was deeply moved. That's a translation of one word in Greek, the language your New Testament was originally written in. And it, that word, when applied to human emotion, invariably speaks of anger. It indicates, in fact, an outburst of anger, so it can be translated this way. Jesus became angry in spirit, or he was outraged in spirit. Jesus approached the grave of Lazarus in a state not of uncontrollable grief, but of inexpressible anger, seething anger. It's true, he did also respond with tears, but the primary emotion was just rage. Now, why was Jesus outraged? at what he saw in the sickness and then death of his son. One commentator says, The spectacle of the distress of Mary and her companions enraged Jesus because it brought poignantly home to his consciousness the evil of death, its unnaturalness, its violent tyranny. 
In Mary's grief, he sees and feels the misery of the whole race and burns with rage against the oppressor of men. It is death that's the object of his wrath, and behind death, him who has the power of death, that is, Satan, to whom he had come into the world to destroy. So God cares for us, and he cares what happens to us. Ultimately, in death, because we live in a sin-cursed world, but also including all of the things that precede death. He cares about that. But there are plenty of people who can feel the pain of others, be sympathetic, even empathetic, but they can't do anything about it. So it doesn't do us much good to see that God cares for us and that God cares about our circumstances unless the third thing is true. And that is, he cares about fixing both. God cares about fixing us, and he cares about fixing the stuff that happens to us. The immediate circumstance for Mary and Martha and Lazarus was that Lazarus had died. And so Jesus moves to solve that problem. Tears of sympathy, one commentator says, may fill his eyes, but that's incidental. His soul is held by rage, and he advances to the tomb as a champion prepares for conflict. Jesus can pronounce this verdict, an enemy did this, and that enemy, Jesus, has now come to slay. And so in verse 43, take a look at verse 43. After ordering that the stone be moved away from the from the tomb. We're told Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Can you imagine the sight of this man traditionally bound hand and foot and then wrapped as he kind of hops and shuffles out? And all the people there see him, and Jesus says, now take the grave clothes off him and let him go. Jesus, by doing so, fixed the immediate problem of death by raising Lazarus. But more than that, he also set in motion a cure, hear this, for the cause of death. You see, after Jesus did this, word got back to the religious leaders that Jesus had raised a man from the dead. You would think there would be absolute celebration going on. There is one here who is fixing, taking care of, resolving the final enemy, death. And yet the reaction is given in verse 53. From that day on, they plotted to take his life. This miracle of the raising of Lazarus set in motion the final act of the drama that God came to carry out, and that is to die for sin. They plotted to take his life, but he had come to give his life, and he would do so willingly just a few days earlier, and he set all of that in motion with this miracle of raising Lazarus. And in dying on the cross, he paid the penalty for our sin, and thereby he made a way for us to have a relationship with God. We come into the world spiritually dead, separated from God because we live for ourselves rather than for the God who made us. And as a result, all die. For the wages of sin is sickness and disease and addiction and pain and loneliness and backbiting and cruelty and deprivation and ultimately the wages of sin is death. God, Jesus, cares about us. He cares about our circumstances And he has the power and he has the desire to fix both. So then the question arises, why doesn't he fix my stuff now? Why doesn't he fix all of the issues and all of the problems that are going on in my life now? Why didn't he do something? Why doesn't he do something about my situation? And so the first point I have in that outline is Easter tells us about what God cares for, what God cares about. But it also teaches us, secondly, what God cares about most. This passage we're going to see teaches us what God cares about most. We ask the question, why doesn't he do 
this? Why doesn't he fix this? Why doesn't he do it now? But there's something God cares about more than fixing it now. In verse 6, we're told that Jesus stayed where he was for two more days before he set out to go to where his friend was ill. Verse 6, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Now, you think about that. What would you do is you got the news that your friend, is, your friend is sick. Most of us would immediately pack, make arrangements, call our boss, take off and go. And yet the Bible explicitly tells us Jesus waited two more days. Why the delay? For one reason, Jesus wanted to ensure that everyone understood without any doubt that Lazarus was dead even before Jesus arrived. You see, Jesus knew before he arrived that he was going to raise him. Look at verse 4. He said, this sickness will not end in death. In verse 11, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. So he doesn't arrive until Lazarus has been dead, we're told, for four days. Verse 17, on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, why four days? It appears that there was a Jewish belief that for three days after death, the soul of the deceased person hovered around the body seeking re-entry. On the fourth day, when the soul sees the color of the body's face has changed, that is, that decomposition has commenced, then the soul goes away and leaves it. So one reason for the delay was to make sure everybody understood Lazarus was fully gone. Because Jesus intended all along to raise him and to raise him for a particular purpose. And what is that purpose? It's found in verse 4 again. This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Verse 14, Jesus says, even before he arrives, He knows Lazarus is dead, and he pronounces as much. And then says, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there. Here's why. So that you may believe. Verse 40, as Jesus commands the stone in front of Lazarus' tomb be removed, he says to Martha, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Do you see, friends, he delayed fixing their problem for something that mattered more? the glory of God. He delayed doing that. And he delays fixing our problems when we want and the way we want because there's something more important than our comfort. Now, what is God's glory then? That is most important to God. God's glory is in Scripture the display of what he is like. And what is most important in the hierarchy of needs for us, is not a felt need. It's not what we think we need, what we feel we need. But rather, it's not that our situations be fixed, but it's first and foremost that we know God. If God allowed us to dictate when and in what manner He would fix our stuff, think about the potential for the mess that we would make. Because we are limited in our knowledge and our understanding of how what's going on with us affects everything else that's going on around us, one has said we are necessarily largely unaware of the circumstances which surround the events taking place in our lives and those of others, as well as the consequences which result from them. Only God is omniscient. And since our desires are not fully redeemed, not fully renewed, even if we were aware of all the implications, there's no guarantee that sinners like us would choose only what is for the highest good for ourselves and others. Our imperfect desires make us want immediate answers and render us unprepared for the patient ripening of God's plans. But know this. Thanks be to God, His delays are not final. He will deliver in his own time, and in his own way. No doubt that's frequently later than we would have chosen, but from his perspective, it will be the right time. Friends, God is the best timekeeper. As a matter of fact, he created time, and God is never late for his appointments. And God doing this, Jesus doing this, even with his friend Lazarus, does not contradict 
his love for them. Notice verses 5 and 6. Verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was. (laughs) Well, all right, you love him, so you stay. And the word so is the connection. It's therefore. Precisely because he loved them, he waited. Precisely because he loved them, he waited so that they would see what they needed most, the glory of God. When God delays, God is not doing something to us. God is doing something for us. He delayed because he loved them. Now that may seem to you like a bit of a bait and switch. We say God cares about us. That's taught throughout Scripture, but then not really. It's really his glory that he cares about. But consider this, friends. Love is doing what's in the best interest of another. And because God loves us, he always does what is in our best interest. And the most important thing for us, the thing that is most in our best interest, is that we know the glory of God. He delays to show his glory, and his glory is good. It's not that he cares about me and then he pulls the rug from under me by saying, but I care about me more. No, in caring about him and his glory, he's doing what is best for you and what is best for me. Friends, we were made for God's glory. Not only in seeing it in our weakness, but intentionally pursuing it in our lives. And Jesus, God, was willing to come and die to pursue this glory and to have followers who would pursue it after him. The night before Jesus died, he prayed a marvelous prayer in John chapter 17. He said in part this, Father, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now he's speaking predictively, prophetically, because part of that work that he's been given to do is going to be accomplished on the next few days as he dies and as he is risen. But as far as Jesus is concerned, he is resolved to do it. He's going to carry it out. And why is he going to carry it out? For the glory of God. So Easter teaches us what God cares about. And Easter teaches us what God cares about most. And third in your outline, Easter teaches us what we should care about. Jesus raised Lazarus. A few days later, Jesus himself is going to be crucified. And then on the third day, he rises. And the Bible says this of Christ having risen from the dead. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Notice the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So those in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ, the first fruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him. Now, why is it that Jesus can be called the first fruits when, in fact, we just saw from John chapter 11 at least one other person had risen before Jesus, Lazarus? And, in fact, Jesus had raised a couple of other people as well a widow's son and a man named Jairus' daughter. So, why is he called the, the first fruits? Well, this is a phrase going back to the first part of your Bible, the, the Old Testament, first fruits. And it had to do with, it was a farming term, had to do with the harvest. And when the first fruits came, it was a promise of more to come. And Jesus then is the first fruits, promising that there will be more resurrections to come. But again, why is he called the first? It's for this reason. He is the only person to have been raised with a glorified body. One that will never decay and never die. A body that is fitted for heaven. And there's more to come. You see, Lazarus was raised, but Lazarus would later die. Jesus is the only one, the first one, to be raised with a glorified body. And so John Whitcomb says this helpfully about the comparison between the resurrection of Lazarus and the resurrection of Jesus. He says, observe carefully what happened when Lazarus was raised. First, the giant stone that blocked the entrance to his tomb had to be moved away so he could come out. Second, his grave clothes had to be removed so he could walk. 
This was not necessary for Jesus. The great stone that blocked the entrance of his tomb had been taken away, not to allow him to come out, but to allow Peter and John to come in. Likewise, the grave clothes that had been wrapped around his body were not removed by human hands. The apostle Peter entered the tomb first, and seeing the linen cloths and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but wrapped together in place by itself, it says the Apostle John went in also, and he saw and believed. What does all this mean? The conclusion is obvious. He says, Jesus arose with a special kind of body, a glorified body, that could pass through grave clothes without disturbing their position, pass through a large stone without moving it. This is what John saw, and this is what John chapter 20 tells us he believed. How can we be sure of this? The answer came that same evening. In John chapter 20, we're told that Jesus met with his first followers. And he entered the room without opening the door. And he had a meal with them. Jesus had an absolutely unique resurrection 2,000 years ago. And there's more to come, thanks be to God, because he's the first fruits. But the Bible says that everybody will be raised. And not everybody will be raised to the same end. And I'd like to conclude with telling you what the Bible says about resurrection in general for all of us. The first part of your Bible, it says this, Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Jesus said just a few chapters before John chapter 11. In chapter 5, a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear my voice and come out. Some will rise to live, some will rise to be condemned. What's the difference between those who rise to live and those who rise to be condemned? And the difference is none other than what you do with this one God, Jesus God the Son who came in flesh to carry out the mission to give us relationship with Him. The issue will be for all of us, what did you do with what I did for you? And I remind you of what He did for us. He died to pay the penalty for our sin. He paid the penalty in full, past, present, and future sin. And He was raised three days later a sign that God the Father fully accepted the sacrifice that Jesus made. Because he had never sinned, he was able to die as a substitute for our sin. And the acceptance of that sacrifice for us by God the Father was shown in him raising Jesus from the dead. And now the Bible tells us he reigns as Lord. And he will come again. When he comes again, those who have embraced him and what he did Him as God and what He did on the cross by dying for our sins, bowing their lives before Him as their Lord. Those people will be raised as part of now the later fruits of which He is the first fruits. But there will be others, many, many others raised who have rejected His offer of deliverance. Jesus said to Martha in verses 25 and 26, will you look there? I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And at the end of verse 26, Jesus says, Do you believe this? And that's the question for every one of us. Do you believe this? Perhaps the Spirit of God has moved upon your heart this morning for the first time for you to say, so that's what Easter's about. And yes, I believe that. We're going to pray in just a moment together. And as we do, this is how you come to God through Jesus Christ. You recognize that you are one of those sinners, as am I, for whom He died. He paid the price for your sin and my sin, past, present, and future. So you realize that you're a sinner. Recognize that Jesus died for those sins. Repent, then, of your sin. 
I've been living my life for myself, not for the most important thing, namely your glory, God. So I'm going to go your way now, not my way. That's what repent is. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. When we bow, you can pray from your heart to God in your own words, a prayer that acknowledges your sin, his payment for your sin, and your desire to give him your life. You do that. God changes you from the inside out. And you not only can live well, hear this, you can die well. Because in the words of the songwriter, for the one who believes in Jesus, it is not death to die. The fact that Jesus rose 2,000 years ago should radically affect the way that you live today. So I have a take-home truth at the bottom of your outline. Friends, believe in Jesus now, and you will be prepared for life and for death. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you again for this marvelous day that we can set aside to especially focus upon the giver of life, the one who came, God, the God-man, the Lord Jesus who lived a perfect life and who died a substitutionary, sacrificial death for me, for us. And now invites us, bids us to receive the gift that he offers. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I thank you that you have given me that gift and that your spirit at a point in time when I was 19 moved on my heart to cause me to to see my need and to embrace that. And I thank you for so many here who have likewise done so and whose lives that you have changed so that they can live well and be assured of dying well. And I pray for any who came in here, not knowing what Easter was about, just knowing you need to go to church on that particular day. I pray that your spirit is moving on their hearts and drawing them out of the world and to yourself. Deliver them from the clutches of sin and from the consequences of sin, even the eternal consequences of sin. In all of this we pray for the purpose for which all things are to be done, and the thing that we need most, to be active participants in the pursuit of the glory of God. We will give you the praise for what you accomplish, our Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.